When it comes to climate change, the UN is calling 2021 the make or break year if we're to avoid a tipping point of no return. To prevent irreversible change to our environment, people are looking at ways of making our food more sustainable and protecting the planet. And one of the solutions proposed is a regenerative approach to agriculture. But what is it and where do we even start with regenerative farming? I'm Matt Eastland and welcome to the Food Fight podcast from EIT Food, exploring the greatest challenges facing the food system and the innovations and entrepreneurs looking to solve them. Regenerative agriculture is no small task. It requires strategy, patience and foresight. And as more purpose-driven people step forward to play their part in nurturing our planet's ecosystem, we need to equip them with the evidence-based knowledge and tools they need to put this into practice. This is what we're going to be talking about on today's episode, the blueprint for starting your own regenerative practice. And to provide us with all the information we need, I'm joined by two amazing regenerative agriculture advocates. First of all, I'd like to welcome the TEDx speaker, podcast host, and founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust, Patrick Holden. The Sustainable Food Trust is a charitable organization that strives for a better food and farming system for people and the planet. Patrick has heaps of experience at all levels of farming, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much for uh, having me. It's a privilege to be participating. Thanks very much. And our other guest is a great colleague of mine, Philip Fernandez, who works as our agriculture project manager, EIT Food. Philip works on programs to encourage regenerative farming in Southern Europe, and his latest project, the Regenerative Agriculture Manual, is aiming to raise awareness among consumers about the environment and health benefits of sustainably produced food. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Well, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's also an honour to be with Patrick Holden as well. I look forward to it. Amazing. Great to have you both on. Okay, so before we get into this, regenerative agriculture is, let's say, quite the buzzword at the moment. But what is it exactly? Philip, maybe you can start. How do you define regenerative agriculture? I kind of define regenerative agriculture as a focus on certain outcomes. Regenerative farmers are striving to improve soil health and increase biodiversity above and below the ground as a means to improve the environment and produce more nutritious foods for consumers. That for me is the definition. It also has certain, includes certain practices that they can guide farmers in the process, but I'd like to emphasize that it's very much outcome-based. Amazing, thanks Philip. And Patrick, anything to add to what Philip says? Well, I think he gives a brilliant description, but of course it's a very good question too, because there are a number of terms which are being used to describe the change to farming and food production systems that is necessary because of climate change and reversing biodiversity loss and improving human health. And of course it's the detail of the farming practices which need to be described and defined. And there are other words like agroecological, organic, biodynamic, I've had a lot to do with both of those systems, which are also uh, being used. And I think it's important to look at what we need to achieve, the outcomes, because I think if we can concentrate on what we need to end up with, then that will help. And then also we need to measure the impacts. So I think what we need to do is 
if you look at the history of the 20th century agricultural systems, they've been extractive of the natural and human capital that we built up over millennia. And we've dined out on soil fertility, produced food at the expense of nature. And we're now in a very dark place. And people say we're in the last chance saloon in terms of soils. We're facing the sixth great extinction, etc. So Given that farming is now the majority land user on planet Earth, no longer, sadly, pristine rainforest, but most of the habitable area of the planet is farmed, what we do on farms will be absolutely critical to restoring the ecological balance that we once had. And I think regenerative farming does what it says on the tin. It regenerates what we've lost And it's the practices and the impacts that we need to discuss in this uh, important conversation. Thanks, Patrick. And yeah, I mean, the picture you described there is pretty sobering, I have to say, but it's good that we have things like regenerative farming, which kind of provide that positive edge. And Philip, you spoke about some of the principles of regenerative farming. So it sounds to me like this is more like a, a guiding light rather than something which needs to be kind of locked down, right? Yes, there are some farming principles that can be applied to reach these outcomes. But I just wanted to say that in terms of the the positive angle on this, Patrick mentioned the different types of of organic farming. There's agroecology, organic farming, many different uh, movements, and many of the principles are very much related. But what I think is really interesting about regenerative agriculture is its positive focus on improving the soil and increasing biodiversity. One of the problems with organic farming was that it kind of told you what not to do. Mm -hmm. Don't use these uh, chemicals in your crops. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I think that was right. But it's hard when you're a farmer trying to achieve something to focus on what not to do rather than what to do. And so I think the great contribution to regenerative agriculture is precisely that. So there's a series of of principles such as uh, tilling the land as little as possible, minimum soil disturbance as a way of protecting the life underneath the soil, always keeping the land covered with plants. This is key as a means to uh, preventing erosion. It's also very important because it's plants and their photosynthetic activity, which feeds the soil and all the microbiology that's under the soil. And that microbiology in turn helps plants and animals. Also very important to increase biodiversity, as I said, above and below the ground with intercropping, crop rotation, combining plants and animals. Another key principle is try to reduce and hopefully eliminate the use of agrochemical products on the crop. It's uh, not compatible with creating life. You can't kill insects and kill plants as a means of creating them. So I think that's very key. And finally, it's uh, very specific regenerative agriculture. We talk about context-specific design. It's not the same to grow apples in Poland as it is in in, uh, southern Spain. So we have to uh, take this into account and keep in mind that these are general principles, but how they're applied in a specific location will change. Amazing. Thank you for that, Philip, and you know, and, and also Patrick for kind of sort of helping us contextualize that, I suppose. And I like that idea of sort of guiding principles which can then be universally applied to different places. That's brilliant. And seeing as this episode is all about breaking into regenerative agriculture, I'd really love to know first how you both got into this space and where your interest started. So Patrick, maybe if we can start with you, what sort of first ignited you about getting into this space? 
Well, I'm quite old now. I've been farming. <laughs> I've been farming the same piece of land forty-eight years, which is quite sobering. And I arrived on the farm where I still live in West Wales in 1973, aged 22. I was born in 1950, and I was, as most of us are these days, an urban dweller. I grew up in London. My dad was a doctor. But I was around at an interesting time in the 60s. The music was great. There was a big sort of hippie movement. I had long hair then. And my dad was posted out to California, the San Francisco Bay Area. He was a visiting professor at Stanford at the time. And I went with him, drank the Kool-Aid, got inspired by the green thinking of the time and thought, man, got to get back to the land and set up a rural community and live happily ever after. So when I got back to England in 1971, I thought, right, OK, better train, got a job on a farm in Hampshire, dairy farm, studied biodynamic farming at Emerson College in Sussex, and then gathered a bunch of friends. And we said, right, let's move to Wales. So we bought a farm, very run down, and started farming. And the commune didn't last that long. You know, communes are difficult. I still love community living, but it is tough. And uh, But the farm has survived and prospered. And so I'm in the very privileged position of looking at a landscape that I've been trying to manage, you know, as an ecosystem for the last nearly 50 years, looking at the outcomes. And I wouldn't call what I've been doing regenerative farming, while well, the term didn't exist then, but it's sort of regenerative and it's the best we could do. I've learned as I went along. And it's incredibly exciting to witness the outcomes because there's so much biodiversity. There's so many birds, insects, the soil fertility has grown. We're producing cheese from the milk of our native breed herd. And it's reassuring and actually inspiring to look at what can be achieved without a chemistry-based agriculture. So I think that we're at the threshold of a whole new chapter in the global history of farming right now. Millions of young people, particularly young people, maybe a bit like me, only a kind of 21st century version, are wanting to get back to the land, are wanting to grow their own food, to work in harmony with nature. And I believe, yes, we can, and it must be done because unless we do it, we're not going to have a livable planet. Wow. Inspiring stuff, Patrick. Um, and what a journey you've been on. And I love the fact that you're still farming on the same farm. And that, that shows dedication. I love it. You know, you, you say on your website that leadership is instrumental in influencing people to become more sustainability focused. You, and I, maybe that's where that, that gap is. So do you feel there's been a lack of leadership in this space so far? Yes, I do. And I mean... What is exciting is I think it's starting to change. I mean, if you take the example of Nestle, this week they've just put out a huge press release saying they're going to switch their whole company to regenerative farming. And they were displaying remarkable humility on a leadership call that I attended. They said, look, we... We need to listen to our farmers. We don't actually know what the route map looks like. We don't even know what the systems are like because we're in uncharted waters. But the fact that they're saying that is amazing. And I do think that the change that needs to happen to our food systems is bottom up, yes, because it's what we buy and eat, but it's also top down. We do need leadership at the moment. And to be frank, we haven't had much from government recently. So yes, uh, the companies the big food companies, the big retailers, they need to be involved in this process of change. Yeah, it sounds like there's a big realignment going on, which all sounds very positive. And Patrick, so you spoke about 
guiding. And I suppose this is a nice segue into Philip, actually. So Philip, I know your focus in this space has been more around sort of mentoring regenerative farmers and encouraging more regenerative practices in Southern Europe. So how did you get interested in this space? As I know that this isn't where you started, right? You've had a, a different journey. Yes, I came uh, to this uh, space much later in life than Patrick. I actually started in San Francisco as well. I was born and, and raised in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, here's the connection. I knew there'd be. I knew there'd be another one. What a fabulous connection! I think we need to talk after this. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I remember as a child, People's Park, which I think is was one of the areas, at least in the United States, where this whole organic movement uh, began. And I remember People's Park and tear gas at UC Berkeley. So that's very vivid still in my mind. But anyway, for reasons that I can't go into now, I, I ended up in, in Spain and uh, worked uh, as a lawyer, actually, in, in banking. That's how I was trained. But at one point, I had uh, some friends that were producing organic vegetables, and they were having a hard time finding consumers for their produce. There wasn't much demand in Spain, but I knew there was demand in Northern Europe. And so I said, well, you know, maybe something can be done here. So to make a long story short, I started exporting uh, stone fruit and, and other types of fruit to Northern Europe. And that uh, later developed into a home delivery business, a produce uh, delivery business uh, in Madrid. And that's how I started to get in, involved in uh, regenerative, well, at that time, organic agriculture. And my favorite part more so than with uh, consumers of the business itself, I loved visiting farms and planning the season and seeing how things uh are growing. That was my passion. And then uh, EAT Food gave me this great opportunity to develop this project. That's how I got where I am. Amazing. I didn't actually know that you started your own food delivery business in Madrid. That's awesome. And talking about the sort of projects you're working on. So given where you're at now, you know, what's your view around how regenerative farming is taking off in, well, I suppose your focus is more Southern Europe, but, you know, sort of Europe in general. We see that there's a tremendous interest on the part of farmers, independent farmers, to do this. Some because they're concerned in general about the environment. They want to farm better, so they come to us. There are others that maybe uh, approach us because they're having serious problems. Farmers in Southern Europe are facing tremendous challenges as a result of climate change. Like I said, uh, the you know soil erosion, loss of uh, soil fertility, increased uh, input costs, declining prices for their produce. Young people are leaving the rural areas. So there's all these problems. So they, a lot of them may not know about sustainability, but they have no other options and they're out grasping. So what can I do? So that's kind of what we're seeing in, in Southern Europe. So I know you're working on a report, which is exploring the kind of potential health benefits of regenerative agriculture, which is super interesting. So could you, are you able to talk us through any of the findings or what, you know, where you're at now? So we're working on several different studies. One of them is to compare the nutrient density of regeneratively produced food to its conventional counterpart. So that study started with a study of beef and poultry, and uh, we're getting the first results, which show that the fat composition of regeneratively produced beef is healthier than conventionally produced beef. I can't go into detail about that, but the relationship between omega-6 and omega-3 
But basically, to simplify quite a bit, the fat and regeneratively produced beef is healthier for humans. We'll be doing the same for that with vegetables. And we're looking at have another study with one of EIT Foods partners, Naked in the Basque Country. And what they're doing is analyzing the relationship between certain grazing practices on soil health, and then ultimately the nutritional value of the milk. And we're seeing that if we apply holistic grazing practices, we improve soil health, soil organic matter in the soil, and we also can produce more nutritious milk. And the idea is after these studies to disseminate them, perhaps through popular chefs or health and fitness experts, just to be able to transmit, I think this is very valuable information to consumers. Because right now, basically, I think about 10% of the population in Spain, let's say, will consume or buy regenerative or organic produce because they know it helps the environment. But if we can prove that it also is better for your health. We'll see tremendous interest, an increase of 30, 40% of the population that will be buying these uh, foods for health reasons. Thanks for that. I mean, God, it sounds like a really valuable you know, study that you're doing. And I'm looking forward to seeing the results, you know, sort of when they fully come out. I mean, Patrick, while Philip was talking, I can see you nodding away there. So it sounds to me like either you you agree with this whole concept of there are health benefits to regeneratively produced foods, or maybe you've got your own insight here. Anything to add? Well, both. I agree with everything he's just said. I mean, it's all 100% right, in my opinion. I think it's critical to inform the public. I think the power of informed public opinion to drive change in our food systems is the single biggest factor which will enable us to do what needs to be done in the time available. And I think informing people better about the impact on food quality and human health of regeneratively produced foods is critical. And also, I think people need guidance about what to eat. I think there's not a person on the planet at the moment who's not just hungry, who's not asking the question, what should I eat to be part of the solution to be healthy and sustainable? And in my opinion, I'm not sure whether we're going to agree about this, but there have been a series of reports which have been produced over the last few years, which I think have succeeded in further confusing people about what the best thing to eat is. And the answer that we at the Sustainable Food Trust have is that we should eat what the sustainable and regenerative farmers in the country or region where we live produce. In other words, we should align our diets with what the farmers produce in the ratios they produce those foods when they switch to regenerative farming. Now, do we know what that is? Well, I don't. So we thought, okay, I'm a focus group of one. Let's commission our own study to imagine that the whole of the United Kingdom, this is just to take one country, was to transition to regenerative farming. And we've defined what we mean by that, as we've already discussed the principles and the practices in the sort of opening chapter. And then we've calculated the impact, not only on the yields, but the ratios of livestock products, fresh vegetables, etc. And then we've divided that by the population of the United Kingdom. Then you've got a diet. You know, so in other words, if you to ask me, well, what should I eat? And I'd say, well, firstly, you should eat what the farmers produce. And then you're going to say, well, what is that? And I'm going to say, well, it's this much dairy product. It's this much beef grass fed, of course, because that's better for omega-3, omega-6. And it's this much vegetables and fruit in season and grown not just in vegetable monocultures, but as part of proper regenerative farming rotations. And that report is going to come out at the end of October, just in the run up to COP26. And I think there will be, I mean, I can give you a sort of teaser 
taste of the conclusions, which are that, of course, we should eat lots of vegetables properly grown and all that sort of thing. But we should more or less give up eating industrial chicken and pork. And that's, of course, in the news at the moment because all this CO2 stuff where they're all slaughtered with CO2. But paradoxically, we actually can eat probably as much grass-fed and mainly grass-fed red meat, beef and lamb and dairy products as we are doing at the moment. Because contrary to what the Climate Change Committee people are saying, actually grass-fed livestock systems are lie at the very heart of sustainable regenerative farming. And as long as we don't wastefully feed grain to those animals, and as long as we holistically graze them, which is one of my nodding episodes, mob grazing, all that sort of thing, we can actually not only eat beef and lamb with a clear conscience, we can do so knowing that they are helping not only to hold on to the existing soil carbon bank in the grasslands, but also to build soil carbon, which is what we need to do. So that's interesting. So the view from your side is that actually, you know, because we we always get told reduce meat consumption, reduce fish consumption, because it's kind of unbalancing things from a climate perspective. But but your view from a regenerative point of view is actually it's acceptable, it's absolutely achievable within this kind of balanced ecosystem. Yes, and not only that, but this binary debate about moving to a plant based diet avoids the issue of we need to be as discerning in the choices we make for our plant foods as we are with our livestock foods. So we don't want to eat palm oil from cleared rainforests. We don't want genetically modified soy, which has got a terrible environmental footprint. So we need to say which plants and which animal products should I eat to be part of the solution and be equally rigorous in both those choices. And in fact, it will vary between countries. There are some unifying principles about regenerative agriculture, but what we will produce in Mediterranean countries and the ratios of those foods will differ from the UK. And that's wonderful. But we need to know that information, and we don't at the moment. Mm. I think the paradigm, really, of a regenerative farm is one where livestock and plants coexist. It's the paradigm of the circular economy. The cows, through the excrement, are fertilizing the soil, which means that there's better grass for them to eat and better food for us. And so you eliminate all these inputs and toxic outputs that you get from industrial farming. It's all included on the same farm. So animals are are essential to regenerative farming. Brilliant. Okay, thank you both. That's super clear and, um, you know, very helpful. So why don't we go to sort of think about where we start then? So if you've got somebody who is super passionate about this particular space and they want to start their own regenerative farm, what are their first steps? You know, where do they even start here? So Patrick, as someone with hands-on experience, uh, maybe we can start with you. So what would would your advice be, right? I want to start my own regenerative farm. What do I do now? Well, I assume that you're young, you know, and (laughs) the force is with you. And the great thing about being young is you do crazy things, you know. So if you live in a city and you think, oh, I'd like to get involved with regenerative farming, that sounds impossible because, you know, you don't know anything. So, I mean, that's what I was like when I was 21. I just thought, oh, well, let's do it anyway. So I, I think take the risk, get involved with learning from existing farmers don't necessarily go to agricultural college because most of them are so sort of academic and they're the old orthodoxy. I'm not against college, but Mm -hmm. I think they've got a journey to go on. So my view is the best way to learn about farming is through practice. That's what I did. But obviously, if you hang out with a farmer who's already a good practitioner, 
People like Joel Salatin is doing a lot of that. He has apprentices. There's good farmers all over the world who are doing good work and bringing in apprentices and students, as we are doing. And I think if you hang out with those people for a bit and learn and then find a way to get on the land, and obviously the money is a big barrier to access to farming, but, you know, you can rent land. I didn't own land for about the first 30 years of my farming career. I was in a very insecure position, partly as a member of a commune, which is disintegrated, as I said, and and then as a tenant farmer. And then eventually I had a chance to borrow money to buy the farm. So I think if you're passionate and you're determined to learn, I think that's the key. Okay, so take take your passion, hang out with the right mentor farmer who's into this space and find yourself a plot of land somehow. So that, that seems like good sort of concrete steps. And Philip, what else would you add? I would recommend to someone who's starting out in the regenerative farming to first figure out, to understand where they are, know where they want to go, and then figure out what practical steps they have to take to reach their goals. And in fact, in the uh, advisory program that we have at EIT Food for regenerative farmers or people that are transitioning to regenerative farming, that's uh, the first exercise that they have to do. We call it the holistic transition plan. And they have to sit down with the help of the expert agronomist and figure out exactly that. You know, where am I? What type of ecosystem do I live in? What crops do I have? What makes me happy? And then, you know, what are your goals? You know, I want to have an integrated, diversified farm. I want to make the best wine ever, or I want to make an affordable wine, let's say, or I want to make grow heirloom tomatoes. So that's where I want to go. And then what do I need to, to get there? What do I need to do? What investments? Who can I depend on? What's my network? All those uh, nitty gritty decisions are really important. Okay. So just to summarize then, so it's take your passion, hang out with the right farmer, mentor, get yourself a plot of land, be really clear on your objectives and kind of where you want to get to and take it from there. That sounds like a good five-step plan right there. So that's great. And a really probably unfair question because I'm pretty sure based on everything you've said that there is no such thing as an average day. But what would an average day look like for a generative farmer in comparison to like a conventional farmer? What is it that people can expect? Patrick, what do you think? Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, you'd think my advanced stage of life, I would be kind of, you know, delegating all the work of the farm to others. But for a number of reasons, I mean, we are milking, we're growing the crops for the cows, we're also cheese making all on the farm. And of course, award winning cheese, right? Award winning cheese. Yes. And you can follow us on Instagram, have odd cheese. But the, the point is that it's challenging to get people who want to get up in the morning and milk cows at the moment. So we obviously, we milk twice a day. That's 14 milkings a week. Right now, me and my wife are responsible for sort of nearly 11 of them, 10 or 11 of them. So yesterday morning, my day started at five o'clock. We needed to get the milk in the cheese vat by seven o'clock. So we milked. And of course, it's not just milking. You do the clean up and you get the cows out and move the electric fence. We are mob grazing, all that kind of stuff. And so my day is a fascinating mixture of real practical farming activities, a very diverse because we're a diverse and mixed farm. And then, of course, doing the sort of stuff that we're doing now. And I'm sort of juggling the two. But I think it's really interesting that we need a new generation of young people to get involved with physical work. And I just while you've got me on that drum, 
I think the human body was designed to work physically. And I think I have certainly, even now, I have my best thoughts when I'm doing physical work. Mm. And yet all of us have to go to the gym to keep fit or go running or whatever we do. But actually, if you work physically in the fields, it's wonderful. But we've given a low cultural and economic status to working physically. It's like, oh, the slavery of weeding carrots, which I've done for years. When in fact, it's one of the best things you could ever do with your body. And it stimulates great thoughts. So I think we need to restore the cultural and economic status of growing food for the next generation. Okay, meaningful physical work. And Philip, has this been your kind of experience working with all your other regenerative farmers in Southern Europe? Is that the kind of the sense that you get? Well, first of all, I should clarify that I'm not a farmer. I work in an office, so but I, I do speak with a lot of farmers. I can't really speak about the daily routine, but what I can reflect or transmit is what they say about the difference between regenerative farming and conventional farming in terms of their approach to their work. And in conventional farming, they say that they basically the cooperative or whoever the buyer was that would determine what to plant when to plant it, what products, you know, insecticides, herbicides to apply, when to harvest. It was basically, they just followed orders. And in regenerative farming, all of a sudden they become the decision makers. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it gives you a tremendous freedom, but also some vertigo and it can be overwhelming. But I think ultimately it's rewarding. And it means in regenerative farming, you're involved in many different physical activities and intellectual activities. You're involved in producing, you're involved in ultimately a lot of regenerative farmers have to sell their own food. So they're involved in distribution, they're involved in marketing. They're also, have, unfortunately, do a lot of paperwork. So they're involved in many different activities, which means that it's a very interesting and challenging job. So I should point out my sons tell me that they want an outdoor job. They don't want an office job. And so I always encourage them, well, why don't you become a farmer? Why don't you become an agronomist? You know, I mean, you can be outside, work with your hands, meaningful physical work. And, but they say, but dad, you know, I hear you, you know, on Zoom conversations and all you do is talk about dirt. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it, right? My sons say the same. Okay, so we need to we need to get people to overcome their fear of dirt by the sounds of it. And just picking up on one point. So, you know, I imagine people listening, Philip, that, you know, everything you say, you're right, that does sound hugely rewarding. It sounds very diverse and very interesting, but it could be quite overwhelming. So where do people start if they don't have those experience or skills? And are there any kind of quick wins? So, yes, we've kind of said, you know, good steps to take, but from what you've seen on farms, are there any kind of key things that are always going to work when you're starting off? Let me see. First, I could give an example. First, I should emphasize the importance of training. Because you're on your own, because you have to make all of these decisions, you're not told what to do. Training is essential. And that could be from a regenerative expert advisor, or it can be from your peers, uh, other farmers in your area that are going through the same process. That can be extremely helpful. But there are some quick wins that farmers can achieve. And again, I think with the help of an advisor, we just received a, a practical case study that was very interesting. And it was a conventional peach farmer who decided he wanted to transition to regenerative agriculture. But he was very cautious and and also, you know, kind of scared about the whole thing. One of our advisors began to advise him. And basically, the recommendations were simply to stop using as many chemical inputs, 
And instead of that, use natural compost. Instead of doing preventative treatments, in other words, you know, applying products that will kill off any potential disease, even though the plant's not sick right now, to simply add those nutrients that are missing in the soil and improve the microbiology. Anyway, to make a long story short, this farmer was able to save or spend a quarter of what he spent in his conventional farm. In other words, his cost went from 100 to 25. And thanks to the increased photosynthesis of the plants, which is due to the increased uh, soil health, he was able to produce 25% more peach. Wow. It's a very quick win. This happened in one year by simply reducing farming inputs, improving the microbiology of the soil to increase photosynthesis, to increase production. So there are some quick wins. And this didn't involve any major changes on the farm. This was a peach farm. And that's it. And that farmer was actually reluctant to use cover crops. He said, oh, my God, I can't have weeds growing around here. That was without cover crops, which will increase the organic matter in the soil even more. But after these results, he decided that next year he's going to plant cover crops and basically do anything the advisor tells him to do. Ah, got it. So he's he's kind of a bit cautious to start with, but he's seen the benefits. And then next year, he's going full in on all the principles. Yeah, because it, I should point out, it's a tremendous change in, in mindset. These are just slight changes in terms of production. But to think, you know, I mean, people are thinking, you know, oh, I have to apply all these products in case, you know, my plants get sick or my trees get sick. It's like as if we all went through chemotherapy to avoid getting cancer. It's very debilitating. And all these products weaken the plants and make them much more susceptible to disease, which is why they later on have to apply all these other, you know, insecticides, herbicides. So... Okay, thank you. And Patrick, just given your experience in this space personally, I mean, do you sort of agree with what Philip's saying? Or are there, are there any other kind of tips and tricks for somebody starting out that you'd recommend? Because I can imagine that this is the part of the podcast that people are going to be really focused on. It's like, where do I start? What are the tricks? Or are there no tricks? I do agree with everything that Philip has said. It's such an important question, a question of our time. I think People who know little about agriculture, regenerative agriculture and horticulture, and want to get back to the land, should feel good about that. Because in some ways, if you don't have to unlearn a lot, and you're fresh to it, and you're really interested, this is an advantage, potentially. I certainly think it was an advantage for me when I started getting interested when I was a Londoner. All I had really was impressions of nature from childhood holidays and a couple of visits to farms. And I do believe profoundly that everything is connected so that if you have an experience of nature in a London garden or, you know, maybe you grew some vegetables in a little raised bed, you already understand so much of the secrets of the mystery of life, which can be applied at a larger scale on a farm. So don't be intimidated by, you know, an apparently overwhelming body of knowledge that farmers seem to have. And we've got a couple of young apprentices in their late 20s with us right now and they came to us and they said, they're both from London, we said, what do you want? And they said, well, we want to learn about cheese making, we want to learn about uh, farming. Both of us want to do both. So we're splitting it between three weeks on with one and then three weeks on with the other. And I think that that's probably the best way to equip yourself to start to take it onto your own small holding or farm or whatever you're going to do. There are lots of different ways in, but I do think learning by doing is so powerful. And if you look at the mess we're in with agriculture at the moment, all the advisors to DEFRA and, uh, you know, common agricultural policy reform, so few of them have actually ever farmed. 
The future is in the hands of practitioners. There are too few of them about, and they're important. And just take the risk. You know, it's all about showing up, really. Just show up. Love that. Okay, so don't be intimidated. Take the plunge and just show up. Love it. Okay. Everybody out there, get cracking, basically. Patchy, so you, you spoke about something about sort of scaling up, and I just wanted to touch on on that and also a little bit about um, sort of technology in regenerative as well, which, you know, maybe traditionally people wouldn't think would go together. So first question then, so can you scale up regenerative farming to a level, and I kind of think I know where this is going, but to a level which is kind of equal, if not superior to conventional farming, first of all. So what do you think, Patrick? Well, I think this is the age-old question, could regenerative farming feed the world? And the really super honest answer is we don't know. But a better answer is, yes, we can, or yes, we could, if we wasted a lot less food, because 50% of all the food, or up to 50% before and after the farm gate, right through to the fridge, is wasted right now. And in the circular economy, nothing should be wasted. So we waste a lot less. We eat differently, as I was saying earlier, and we align our diets, our future diets, to what the regenerative farmers will produce in those proportions. And then we farm with this new knowledge of ecosystem management, informed by, you know, research and innovation, which is going to lie ahead of us, if we do all those things, I think absolutely we can scale this up. And it's, this is the big challenge for big food companies like, you know, Nestle, Unilever and the big retailers. They're at the beginning of a new uncharted journey with a map which doesn't yet exist. And we've done a brilliant job of totally industrializing and centralizing our food systems. We've gone right to the end. We couldn't go much further. When, just to give you one example, most supermarkets only have one abattoir now to slaughter each species of animals. So in the case of lambs, they might all go to one abattoir in Wales, even if they come from Scotland. And it's the same with vegetables. You know, if you, if I used to grow carrots on a big scale for supermarkets, but then they closed down all the packhouses in the west of England and Wales. So I couldn't I couldn't make it work. So I was having to drive my carrots 230 miles to get them packed. That's got to be reversed. We've got to have family, independent businesses that produce food, retail food, process food. It's like a war effort in a 21st century context. And we absolutely can do it. And I'll tell you why we can do it, because there's no alternative. We've got to do it. So it's exciting. Exactly. When people ask me, can regenerative agriculture feed the world? I kind of turn the question around and say, can conventional farming continue to feed the world? So first of all, I I think Mm. we can't continue the way we are right now. But secondly, I don't think that we have a problem right now with food shortage. Actually, the biggest problem we face, especially in Western societies, is obesity. It's not undernutrition. It's malnutrition, eating poorly. So we have plenty of food. It's just a question of getting the food to the people and getting nutritious food to people. If we look at the examples of regenerative farming, and if we're seeing that there are specific examples where farmers are regenerating the land, yields are not declining, they're diversifying their crops, and therefore their risk. They're not producing toxic waste. Their input costs are coming down. This can be extended to other farms. 
So I, I think, yes, it, it can be scaled. And I think there's also the importance of technology. We work at EIT Food. We're focused on innovation, whereas many of what we talk about is very location-specific. There are other things that can be scaled. There's technology available now, the developing technology to read carbon content in the soil by satellite. That can be an incredibly useful tool going forward. You're doing uh, improving the, the environment, and if a satellite or you can get information that says, this is how much soil organic matter you created. This is how much carbon you sequestered. And maybe you can even get paid for that social good, that environmental good that you're doing. So that's something that can be scaled. And then there's also a recent technology now to with what they're called spectrometers, some sort of uh, device that can read the nutritional content of a specific food stuff with a scanner. So if on the one hand, we can see that regenerative farmers are increasing soil organic matter, and we can re- see immediately you know, what the nutritional value of that food is in the grocery store. Look at a carrot and say, this one has twice as much vitamin D as this one. Which one am I going to buy? That's something that will have a tremendous impact on regenerative farming. I love it. Thanks very much, Philip. Yeah, it's good to know that um, technology actually, rather than sort of being pushed aside from this sort of type of farming, sustainable farming, whether it you know, it actually should be embraced. And that's certainly something, like you say, that we believe at EIT Food. And uh, funnily enough, we have another podcast coming up on that soon as well. Patrick, any thoughts on the use of kind of the latest technology with regenerative? Yes, I mean, I agree with Philip that the potential to use new technology to measure nutrient density, for instance, the Bionutrient Association in uh, New England are coming up with technology for that, is brilliant. But I think like all technologies... We need to be quite discerning because they can be used for good or ill. And, you know, I'll give you one example. I mean, I was strongly opposed to first generation of genetically engineered plants. And I'm very sceptical that genetic engineering will produce silver bullets that are going to feed the world or all that sort of thing. But now the gene editors have come along and they've said, look, we don't have to genetically engineer crops. We can edit the genes because we've got the capacity to map the genome now. And I know that in the UK, it's quite likely now, because the government think it's a, you know amazing technical fix, that gene editing is going to be permitted. But I'm mindful of the emerging science of epigenetics, which is this new understanding that all living organisms constantly adapt to their external environment and through gene expression at a cellular level can actually modify themselves and their descendants And Rudolf Steiner, the Austrian philosopher who was the founder of biodynamic agriculture, said we should breed from the plants and animals on our farms, which are an ecosystem, because they will become adapted to the place. And I think agriculture forgot that for 100 years. And now we are massively dependent on an incredibly small gene pool of both plants and animals. And I've been part of that problem using artificial insemination for my dairy cows and growing F1 hybrid carrots, etc. And I am not enamoured with the gene editors because I think they're just going to further treat the symptoms, not the cause of the problem, which is chemical agriculture and industrial agriculture. And the risk is we will even further narrow the gene pool, which is available to farmers. So I believe that, and I want to practice what I preach here, I'm not yet, that I should breed my own bulls and let them adapt to the unique ecosystem, which is my farm. And I should start to use this land race technique where you save seed 
and you allow the seeds to adapt to the soils where they grow. I'm not saying it's religion, but I'm saying it's a sort of antidote to this belief that we can somehow, the arrogance of science, which can be taken too far. So of course, technology is part of the future. Look at what we're doing now, but we should be careful. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess one of the things I take away from that is it's a really evolving space. And I think that's really exciting, actually, because it sounds like, you know, you're saying you've been doing this, Patrick, for such a long time. And yet you are still learning more and more and you're still having to adapt and apply the latest best practices, which I think, again, for people trying to get into this space is, is a really encouraging thing to promote. It's like you will continually learn, you will continually adapt. And as a result, you know, the, your farm and, and the environment around you will get better. So I, I love that. I'm really, really gutted, actually, but we're actually coming to the end of our time on the show. And I think this has been one of those one of those shows where I say it a few times, but I really could talk about this with you both for hours. So, you know, really thanks for that. But just to kind of finish on, do you have any, going back to this whole, where do I start? Do you have any specific training programs or courses that you'd recommend for people? So that's kind of question part A. And then what final piece of advice would you give listeners who are thinking of pursuing a career in regenerative agriculture? So Philip, to start with, any specific training programs or courses you'd recommend? Well, uh, EIT Food has its own uh, training schedule, training program. So this is my opportunity to tout the program. <laughs> we On our website, you can see that we have six courses in uh, Spain and Portugal this year. And they're uh, regional and they're specialized on different crops. So we had a course in olive groves in Andalusia, for instance. We're going to have a course on vineyards in La Rioja. So very, very crop specific and specific to ecosystems. In Italy, we're organizing three courses. And in uh, Poland, we're organizing courses as well. And those courses are followed by a three-year advisory program where a regenerative expert accompanies uh, the farmer as he or she transitions to regenerative agriculture. So yeah, that's the course offering. And also there's many other organizations that offer uh, teaching. There's regenerative agriculture associations in, in all European countries, and they have their own uh, training programs as well, which are very, very good. In terms of uh, advice, I don't know whether I, I, I should stop here. No, or... go ahead. What would be your piece of advice? Well, I think it kind of depends on the audience. I think my advice to a farmer who's really concerned about sustainability is a dreamer. I would uh, just remind him to not lose sight of profitability, that uh, for dreams to come true, you need money. So don't forget what your objectives are and uh, make sure you're making money along the way. Uh, in terms of uh, advice to a conventional farmer that's wondering whether uh, they should consider this as an option or not, I, I would say the most important thing is to keep an open mind, to question convention. A lot of things that we do are completely absurd, and just because we've been doing them for years doesn't mean that they're the right way of doing things. And uh, in terms of my message to agri-food businesses, food retailers, is to first, you're so important to this whole process, we need you but you're gonna to need to be creative and uh, hopefully develop uh, products that take into account what Patrick was saying before, to take into account the diversity of a farm. So uh, create innovative foods that can source all the products of a farm rather than bending nature to a product portfolio. So. Amazing, thanks Philip. And thanks very much also for kind of breaking that down into advice per audience or stakeholder group. That's really great. and. Patrick, same questions to you. So where would you recommend people go to kind of get more training and what would your kind of one final piece of advice be? 
Well, I'll just focus on one place, which I think is an inspirational training centre, and that is in Ireland, a place in Ireland called Ballymaloo Cookery School, where they've now just introduced, they do a 12-week course for in cookery. But the amazing thing about this school is it's based on a 100-acre farm in the west of Ireland near Cork. And the cookery school is entirely nourished by the farm. And so when you learn to cook there, you have the first thing, Darina Allen runs it. She's a legend, really, she's a force of nature. And she takes the students out onto the farm and she says, you can't learn to cook here unless you learn how to harvest the vegetables, milk the cows because they've got a micro dairy, the five cows, make butter, cheese, yogurt, everything, and bake bread every morning. Oh. So the whole thing is vertically integrated and it is a completely... My daughter went on the course, changed her life, love life as well, you know, everything. It was all in there because, of course, it's fascinating. It draws students from all over the world. And they've just introduced a six-week sustainable food and farming course as well with visiting people who speak there. I'm one of those. And I just think that sort of place is like a beacon of hope and inspiration. And I do believe, kind of building on that model, that what we really need is beacon farms all over the world, where not just young people who want to get, make a career in food and farming visit, but also policy people, you know, who are redesigning our agricultural policy framework can be inspired by best practice. And I think that those farms should act as an educational and cultural resource. So we're practicing what we preach on our farm. We've got an old threshing barn. We've just put a floor in it with underfloor heating. We've got some loos and a kitchen and we want some accommodation we're putting little eco huts up so we want our farm to be able to host visits of children of young people of policy makers you know whoever wants to learn which should be all of us because we all eat and so I, I see that lattice work of a sort of informal coalition of farms opening themselves up to become centers of inspiration and education being part of the solution in entirely matching what Philip's just said complimentary. Thanks, Patrick. Centres of inspiration, I love that. And I think that also resonates with what Philip is doing now in the sort of Southern Europe as well. And thank you both also for the courses. I have actually been talking to Philip about going on one of his courses. And Patrick, I am absolutely going to check out the courses that you recommend as well. So that's brilliant. So huge thanks to you both. Uh, I guess that the final last question is where can listeners go to find out more information about you and, and what you do. Patrick? Well, visit our websites, Sus Food Trust, Sustainable Food Trust. We're doing a lot of stuff that we haven't even talked about on this podcast, including developing a global farm metric for measuring sustainability impacts from the farm up. Sus Food Trust, follow us on Instagram. And as I mentioned, if you want to learn more about what we're doing at my farm, Havod, which is spelt with an F, H-A-F-O-D cheese. I hope that people will come to our Sustainable Food Trust website because I think we need we need to work collectively if we're going to achieve the change that's needed in the time available. Thanks, Patrick. Clear call to action there for people listening. And Philip, where can people find out more about, about you and also the work that uh, you're doing at EIT Food? In terms of EIT Food, on the website, obviously, that's where, as I mentioned before, we have our training programs. Also, shortly, we'll be posting there our regenerative agriculture manual, where uh, farmers can find uh, crop-specific how-to books, how to regenerate their farms. We also have a blog on the website, and this year we'll be adding uh, articles about specific regenerative agriculture, let's say, success stories. Different farmers, what they're doing, how they're 
uh, able to improve the environment and produce more nutritious food. We're also uh, publishing a series of videos, which again is so important for consumer awareness and education. We've had two videos so far, one about explaining what regenerative agriculture is, another one explaining about uh, our program, and this will be followed by a series of videos that talk about the story of regenerative farmers. Amazing. Thanks, Philip. An amazing plug there as well for EIT Food. Love that. So that just leaves me to say a big, no, huge, huge thanks to Patrick and Philip. And thank you all for listening in. So this has been the Food Fight podcast. As ever, if you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu. And please also join the conversation via the hashtag EIT Food Fight on our Twitter channel at EIT Food. And if you haven't already, shame on you, please hit the follow buttons so that you never miss an episode. That's it for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.